Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric. And I'm Gabriella. Join us as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode, we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as His people. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Season 5 of House of David Podcasts. For those of you who are new to House of David, we are a teaching ministry that helps Christians understand their biblical heritage and connection to Israel. Eric, why don't you tell us about some of the things we can look forward to talking about in this new season? Yeah, sure. Last year, we put together a number of episodes that reinforced the church's connection to Israel. We talked about the importance of the Old Testament, God's covenants that he made with Israel and how they apply to the church the meaning of the Hebrew calendar and God's holy festivals, his holy convocations, and we talked about the Jewishness of Jesus. Then on October 7th, the war broke out in Israel, and we spent some time reflecting on the spiritual battles surrounding Israel that we expect will likely continue until Jesus returns. And then to close out the year in December, we looked into the significance of Hanukkah and how this prophetic holiday points to Jesus and the dedication of his future spiritual temple. So sadly, this war between Israel and Hamas, now seemingly also Hezbollah in the north, has started to expose growing anti-Israel sentiment from many nations and to a degree even within the church. Jewish people are experiencing an unprecedented level of anti-Semitism. And there's this pervasive ignorance towards Israel's very existence from both the historical and the political side, but more significantly, the biblical understanding of God's intended plans for Israel's restoration that we know will culminate when Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem. So it's shocking to me to see how much Jew and Israel hatred has surfaced since the beginning of this war. You know, on the one hand, we see people chanting in support of Hamas, and I'm disturbed, but I'm not really surprised. I mean, I expect unchurched people to see the world from a human perspective, not a spiritual one. What I'm much more disturbed about is seeing the growing number of Christians, especially younger ones, who don't know Israel's history. They don't understand the conflicts with the surrounding Arab nations. And even more, they seem to lack any discernment about the spiritual battles behind it. And some Christians are now complicitly working against Israel. But sadly, the majority are actually silent. They're implicitly allowing anti-Semitism to skyrocket. I'm reminded of a recent book by Eric Metaxas called A Letter to the American Church. The book summary reads, and I quote, Eric Metaxas warns of the haunting similarities between today's American church and the German church of the 1930s. Echoing Bonhoeffer's prophetic call, Eric Metaxas exhorts his fellow Christians to repent of their silence in the face of evil before it is too late. Quote, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. So turning the other cheek does not mean standing by while the enemies of God dismantle Christian civilization and brainwash our children. You know, I recently had a conversation with my son, Yonatan, who was in his second year at a Bible college, and we were talking about Israel and the church's relationship to Israel, and I expressed to him how surprising and painful it has been for me 
To see the, the silence of the church towards Israel over these past few months since the war broke out on October 7th. And it reminds me of the silence of the majority of the churches in Nazi Germany, as you know, hard as that is to say. You know, and while during that time there were a few truly courageous and God-fearing Christians, such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there are stories of how, you know, when a train carrying Jews to the camps would go past a church, they would just sing louder so as not to hear the train or the desperate cries of the Jews. Now, now, there are some wonderful churches today that are speaking out against this evil. They're unequivocally standing by Israel. They're raising money to help. They're sending supplies. But sadly, most are silent. And some are talking about the situation. But at the same time, they are attempting to draw some form of moral equivalency between Hamas and Israel. You know, I couldn't agree more. And Eric Metaxas says it like this. An attenuated and unbiblical faith based on what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace has sapped the spiritual vitality of millions of Americans, paying lip service to an insipid evangelism. They shrink from combating the evils of our time. You know, the church in America is not only declining in number, but people's spiritual interests are also waning. And this new Gallup poll shows that Americans' faith in God has hit an all-time low, 81%, six points lower than it was in 2017, and it represents the lowest percentage Gallup has ever recorded. And the biggest drop of any age group was, it was a 10% decline in 18 to 29-year-olds, millennials and Gen Zs. And they differ substantially from traditional older members with about 30% lower church attendance. Another study released in 2021 by the Public Religion Research Institute found a 9% decline and the number of people who identify as evangelical is down to about 14%, when in 2006 it was 23%. So right now in the United States, we have less than 5% of American parents who claim to be Christian that possess what's called a biblical worldview. For parents of preteens, it's only 2% that possess a biblical worldview. And this information came from another Barna study published by the Arizona Christian University in 2022. It shows that more than 9 out of 10 parents have what is called a syncretistic or blended worldview, meaning their beliefs are a mix of multiple worldviews where no single life philosophy is dominant. So what are these blended worldviews? Well, the same study found that less than one-third of Americans believe that the Bible should be the ultimate foundation for determining right and wrong. While 71% say they abide by some traditional moral values, To them, the Bible no longer holds its place as the ultimate authority on right versus wrong. So in America today, there has been this dramatic transition in the public's perception of the Bible's role in defining traditional moral values. So how much more do you think these values have changed concerning God's view of Israel? Well, I think it has a tremendous impact. And a growing number of Christians are starting to see Israel as just another country not necessarily God's covenant nation. And so unfortunately, many Christians cannot see that there's this spiritual problem. It's a spiritual conflict going on in the Middle East, and it cannot be fixed with a natural solution. Simply, Satan is at war with Israel. He's at war with the God of Israel. And Israel is God's covenant nation, and no government can fix this. Only Jesus can fix this. Now, I could go on with the statistics, but the more important question 
is why are Christians in the West, especially the younger generations, abandoning the church and in growing numbers, even leaving their faith in the Bible and embracing a worldview rather than a biblical worldview? And how is this change affecting their view of what is happening in Israel right now and including this dramatic rise in anti-Semitism all over the world? Those are disturbing statistics, and you make some excellent points about Christians who have bought into a humanistic and liberal theologies. So Paul said, um, this is in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul said, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, Paul was not talking about physical strongholds, but spiritual ones, the same ones that are driving this conflict between Hamas and Israel. Having a biblical worldview is essential if we're going to discern what God is doing and allowing in the world, especially as we near the end of the age. Jesus warned the disciples, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. That's from Matthew 24, uh, verses 4 through 5. And Paul talks about the great apostasy that is coming at the end of the age, telling us, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That's from 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, while the overall numbers show that many Christians are falling from their faith, I have to say that I've also noticed that some churches have seen recent dramatic increases in their numbers. Um, And I can say that that's true for the church that uh, Yonatan and I attend. And they seem to be the more, obviously, biblically conservative ones. However, even in conservative churches, I've heard disturbing statements made about Israel. So my son, Yonatan, who attends, as I mentioned, a conservative church, and a theologically sound Bible college, said something else the other day that shocked me. Uh, He told me that some of the Christian students he has talked to, who come from different denominational backgrounds, have expressed that they view the difficulties that Israel is experiencing now, and even past tragedies such as the Holocaust, as part of God's judgment of Israel for their unbelief and for turning away from God. So their response is, Who are they to interfere in God's plan of judgment or discipline for Israel? Needless to say, I was absolutely speechless. And of course, I know that you and I agree that this is a twisting of scripture. So Eric, help us unpack this and understand this further. Yeah, I mean, you just, you and I just quoted Eric Metaxas and his letter to the American church about the silence in the American church against all kinds of evils. And in this case, we're talking about the evil of Hamas that's, that was perpetrated on Israel and Israel defending itself and has this right to defend itself. And, you know, Christians are like, oh, well, Israel is under judgment and, you know, it is what it's going to be and they rejected Christ. But these people are not only twisting scripture without even realizing it, they're actually embracing what is called punitive supersessionism. That is the belief that God is punishing Israel for their rejection of their Messiah. Now, the most extreme belief is that God has entirely rejected Israel and replaced them with a new people, the church. And I'm going to come back to this in a moment. So on the positive side, people who want to hear God's word are congregating in churches that preach it, and that goes for your church and also the church that we attend here in Virginia, and that is fantastic. 
But not all churches preach the Bible accurately, at least not on the part that relates to Israel, which ironically is almost the entirety of Scripture. So one of the primary objectives of this ministry has been to teach the Bible from a Hebraic perspective and bring truth and understanding to the Scriptures that, to some degree, have been lost through the centuries. Now, when I say Hebraic, I mean not filtered through a Western theological lens, but rather a Hebraic one that mainly speaks to a Jewish audience, which is exactly how the scriptures were written. And I think it's clear from the Bible that all of the early apostles were Jews, including Paul, who considered himself to be the least of the apostles. And even Paul wrestled early on with a number of false theologies that had entered or begun to infiltrate and pervert the early church and Christian understanding of the Bible within the first century. For example, Gnosticism rejected the bodily resurrection of Christ, and subsequently his followers, us. The Judaizers tainted the church with legalism that perverted the simplicity of the gospel. And sadly, anti-Semitism had already led many to embrace what is called punitive supersessionism, commonly known as replacement theology, that pulled the Gentile believers away from the Jewish apostles and to a degree created essentially a different religion apart from what should have been the fulfillment of biblical Judaism. So from about 100 AD to 450 AD, we have what's called the Patristic Era, also known as the Time of the Church Fathers. And influential Christian theologians and writers arose within the church during this period and established intellectual and doctrinal foundations of Christianity, and eventually it also created the state church of the Roman Empire. Significantly, none of these church fathers were Jews. A few of them, such as Ignatius and Polycarp, were discipled and influenced by the early Jewish apostles, most notably the Apostle John, who lived the longest, but most of them were not. And gradually, over time, the Gentile church grew in number, and these church fathers wrote differing theologies that often infused or blended Greek, Roman, or Gnostic philosophies with biblical hermeneutics. So, for this new season and the next several episodes, I thought we should focus on this period of church history and see which false theologies arose that infiltrated and negatively influenced the church over the last 2,000 years, especially in regards to Israel, and present the Bible from a view that sees the scriptures as one continuing story from Genesis through Revelation of God dealing with fallen humanity, but retains Israel at the heart and center of God's redemptive work with all the nations. So Israel's restoration is central to God's kingdom and his ultimate plans to restore the entire creation. That is a great overview, and I like your perspective on Israel that addresses more than just the salvation of the Jewish people, but also Israel's restoration. God isn't finished with Israel. Eric, can you help us understand why Israel's restoration is so important for the church? Sure, there are two primary issues that need to be addressed and adequately understood. The first is the relationship between the church and Israel, and the second is the restoration of Israel versus the salvation of the Jewish people. Now, we're not going to have time to talk about all of it in this episode, so we're going to lay a foundation, and then we're going to come back and we're going to continue building on this foundation. There are varying opinions regarding the church in Israel, but they fall into two main camps. 
One group believes that the church has now replaced Israel as God's chosen people. This is called supersessionism, again, replacement theology. The other group believes that God still has a plan for national Israel salvation and restoration. So we're going to talk about now supersessionism. And again, this is going to serve as a foundation. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the relationship between Israel and the church, the millennial kingdom, and other theologies on millennialism, for example. Some of these theologies are in direct contradiction to God's plans for Israel. Some of them at least are not fully contradictory, but they can present themselves in a way that lead people away from understanding God's plans of restoration for Israel. So supersessionism is the view that the New Testament church is the new and true Israel that has forever superseded the nation of Israel as the people of God. And the term supersessionism comes from two Latin words, super meaning on or upon, and sedera meaning to sit. So it carries the idea of one person sitting on another's chair, displacing the latter. And it's based on two core beliefs. The first one is that the nation of Israel has somehow completed or forfeited its status as the people of God and will never again possess a unique role or function apart from the church. And the second is the church is now the true Israel that has permanently replaced or superseded national Israel as the people of God. Now, some theologians prefer the title of fulfillment theology. And what that means is that the church now is the fulfillment of all of Israel's promises. And they use this term to describe their view of Israel's current and future role in relation to the church. But again, the commonly used term is replacement theology, and it's a synonym of supersessionism. Now, strong supersessionists hold that Israel has no future in the plan of God. Moderate supersessionists see some divine plan for the future salvation of the Jews as a people group, but not their national restoration to the promised land. And certainly they do not see a restored Israel at the center of God's future kingdom. That would exclusively be the church. While this last view holds that Israel is the object of God's irrevocable gift of grace and his calling, this role does not guarantee any national blessings like those promised in the Old Testament. Michael J. Vlach is a professor of theology at the Master Seminary at Liberty University, and he gives this detailed explanation of supersessionism. And he suggests it takes on one of three forms. One is called punitive. The other is economic. And the last one is called structural replacement theology. So we're going to break these down here uh, one by one so you can understand how many, but not all, Christians view Israel from different perspectives. And, and by the way, all of these are unbiblical. Punitive or retributive supersessionism believes that God is punishing Israel for her rejection of Christ. It emphasizes Israel's disobedience and punishment by God as the reason for its displacement as the people of God. In other words, Israel is replaced by the church because the nation acted wickedly and forfeited the right to be the people of God. Another author, Walter Kaiser, who is the president emeritus at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in his book, An Assessment of Replacement Theology, writes, Replacement theology declares that the church, Abraham's spiritual seed, has replaced national Israel in that it has transcended and fulfilled the terms of the covenant given to Israel, 
which covenant Israel had lost because of disobedience. Punitive supersessionism was also held by Martin Luther and nearly all of the church fathers. And by the way, out of the Reformation, most of the churches that came out of that continued to hold to these same beliefs. And for Martin Luther, the destruction of Jerusalem was proof of God's permanent rejection of Israel. Now, here's an excerpt from his paper called On the Jews and Their Lies. And listen, he says, Jew, are you aware that Jerusalem and your sovereignty, together with your temple and priesthood, have been destroyed for over 1,460 years? For such ruthless wrath of God is sufficient evidence that they assuredly have erred and gone astray. Therefore, this work of wrath is proof that the Jews surely rejected God, are no longer his people, and neither is he any longer their God. That's a pretty powerful statement and a very wrong one. The next type of supersessionism is called economic supersessionism. And by the way, a lot of churches, especially in the evangelical church, tend to fall into this category. Now, economic supersessionism believes that it was God's plan for Israel's role as the people of God to expire with the coming of Christ and to be replaced by the church. So, in other words, Israel fulfilled its role. This view is not as harsh as punitive supersessionism, since it does not emphasize Israel's disobedience and punishment as the primary reason for its displacement as the people of God. Instead, it focuses on God's plan for the people of God to transfer from the ethnic group, Israel, what Paul would call the natural branches, to a universal group not based on ethnicity, which is the church. In other words, it was God's plan from the beginning that Israel's role as the people of God would expire with the coming of Christ and the establishment of the church. Richard Kendall Solon, professor of systematic theology at Candler School of Theology, argues that supersessionism is linked with how some view the coming of Jesus Christ. According to his teaching, God chose the Jewish people after the fall of Adam in order to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And after Christ came, however, the special role of the Jewish people came to an end. Its place was taken by the church, the new Israel. Although punitive supersessionism was popular in the early church, there were several early church fathers that also espoused economic supersessionism. So, for example, Melito of Sardis declared, quote, The people Israel were precious before the church arose, and the law was marvelous before the gospel was elucidated. But when the church arose and the gospel took precedence, the model was made void, conceding its power to the reality. The people were made void when the church arose. Now, the last form of supersessionism called structural supersessionism to me is absolutely the worst. And it believes that the Old Testament scriptures are essentially indecisive in their formulation of Christian conviction about God's work as consummator and redeemer. And I'm going to explain what that means. This is, again, the deepest form of supersessionism, and it's worse than punitive and economic supersessionism. Essentially, structural supersessionism concerns how the standard canonical narrative of the Bible as a whole has been perceived. And what it does is that it completely neglects the Hebrew scriptures, with the exception of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And so it begins with Adam and Eve and the fall, 
but then it leaps ahead to the apostolic witness and the deliverance of humankind from the fall through Jesus Christ. So, what is the result of this leap over the Hebrew Scriptures? Well, essentially God's identity as the God of Israel and his history with the Jewish people become largely indecisive or essentially irrelevant for the Christian conception of God. And this form of supersessionism has adopted this hermeneutical approach that ignores or removes the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament from essentially having a voice. And yet, God indeed has a voice concerning Israel. I mean, it is pure arrogance of this theology, and Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 11, and I'm going to read here verses, parts of verses 22 through 26. And he says, Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. And then Paul essentially goes on, the next verse, he goes on to actually paraphrase Psalm 53 from the Old Testament, which says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. That's Psalm 53, verse 6. So this entire idea of eradicating the Old Testament is just absolutely mind-blowing to me, but it explains why some Christians, and I've heard them say this to me, to my face, feel that the Old Testament is entirely irrelevant. That definitely explains a lot about why many Christians lack a proper understanding of their relationship with Israel. And if you believe that God has either abandoned or replaced Israel with the church, or worse, don't recognize any part of God's unfolding story with Israel in the Old Testament, you would not have a biblical worldview of how God plans to not only save the Jewish people, but restore the nation of Israel at the end of the age. Exactly. Israel, to many Christians, has become entirely irrelevant, which is probably the explanation for the silence of what's going on in Israel. Some supersessionists do believe that there will be a future salvation of Israel. But the salvation does not mean a restoration of Israel. It merely implies that if there is a remnant of the Jewish people that God saves during the tribulation, they're just going to become part of the church when Jesus returns. So in their minds, there is no restoration of national Israel. And the church now takes the place as God's chosen people, the new Israel. And since we are a spiritual people, we have no need to inherit the land. We will inherit a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And this will get us into another theological discussion about the millennium, which we're going to pick up in another podcast. Some supersessionists do not believe in either the salvation or the restoration of Israel. Neither one. While others believe only in the salvation of Israel, but not in their restoration. So salvation, again, simply means that some Jews will believe in Christ and be saved. But this idea of restoration is, is much more complex because it includes the idea of Israel being replanted in the land that God promised to Abraham and to his descendants. 
and also God's blessings, his promises that Israel would be given this unique role and mission to the nation, specifically that Israel would become this light and this blessing to the Gentiles. And so a restored Israel also means that Israel will have this unique role in place and prominence in God's kingdom that is not shared with any other people group. And we're going to talk about that as well, because it's important for us to understand the distinction between the church and Israel. And Paul was very clear in Romans chapter 9. He makes this unmistakable reference to the natural lineage of Abraham, whom he called my countrymen according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. And I'm going to read it here in uh, Romans 9, verses 3 and 4. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And then he goes on, he talks about the promises to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the services of God, and the promises. And so these were, these were promises that were exclusively given for Israel. The sons of Abraham were promised all these things for their faith and for their lack of it, that because of their rejection, God has now taken those covenant promises and he's giving them to the Gentiles by their faith. So again, we'll come back to that in a future episode. So, you know, here's the issue for what's going on in Israel today and what we're going to see through the end of the age. Is God disciplining Israel for rejecting him? Is he going to continue to deal with a rebellious Israel until the end of the age? Absolutely, yes, he's going to. But that doesn't give us, the church, especially the Gentiles in the church, this privilege of sitting back and doing nothing. And Eric Metaxas is spot on concerning our obligation as Christians to actively stand against evil. And Hamas is evil. We not only have this biblical mandate to share the gospel with the Jew first, and then it says to the Greek, but we also have the scriptures that set examples for how the church is to pray and to intercede for Israel. Moses interceded for God's people, even at the gravest sin of the golden calf. And so, Gabby, why don't you go ahead and read for us Joel chapter 2. This is the same chapter that the disciples declared on the day of Pentecost. Joel chapter 2, verse 17. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Yeah, exactly. We have, and again, I'm, you know, this is my interpret. We are called a kingdom of priests. This is my interpretation. It says, let the priests, that's got to be us, the church. We are interceding between the porch and the altar. The, the altar is the place of God's sacrifice and atonement. And the porch is the outer courtyard outside of the temple, the throne room. Of God. And so here Israel is in a time of desperation and fighting against evil. And Isaiah gives us a message for the nation. So, Gabby, go ahead and read for us Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Yeah, so again, the salvation and the restoration of Israel are scriptural promises that God has made with Israel. And it's a covenant, it's a promise, an unbreakable assurance from the Lord 
that he will not only save this remnant of Israel, that he, he brings through the tribulation, but he is going to gather the remnant from all the nations where he scattered them, and he's going to plant them in the land forever. God's entire being is consumed with this, and the prophet Jeremiah declared it. So, Gabby, let's go ahead, and I'm going to have you read here this verse from Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 37 through 42. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I've driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. Yeah, amen. Those are powerful words. And we have a lot more to talk about in upcoming episodes. We're going to be discussing the distinction between Israel and the church and how the millennial kingdom is tied to the restoration of Israel. And we're going to talk about some of the early church fathers. Again, we, we mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, some of their theological viewpoints and how they correlate with, or in some instances, actually contradict God's, God's promises to restore the nation of Israel. Thank you, Pastor Eric, for this fascinating discussion. And thank you all for joining us today. As we enter 2024, we pray that this new year will bring God's peace and blessings to all of you. Please continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Please pray for the hostages to return safely home. And most importantly, for the people of Israel to know their Messiah, Yeshua. We look forward to you joining us next time on House of David Podcasts. If you have enjoyed this podcast from House of David Ministries, make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.